was an Englishman who moved to Los Angeles about 10 years ago to plant a church. And if you know anything about church planting from having heard Pastor Megan's stories in Port Orchard, you'll know that you need to get out there and get to know the community in which you're planting. So the first night he was there, he went to a bar and he struck up a conversation with three people he'd never met before. He asked them about their lives, got to know them a little bit, what they did for a living. And then the question turned around to this curious Englishman in their midst. So what are you doing here in L.A.? He said, well, I'm here in L.A. because I'm starting a new church. I'm a pastor. One of the people spat out the mouthful of drink that they'd just taken a sip of, turned, and walked away. Another person sighed, (sighs) turned, and walked away. And the third person said, but you're so nice. This was back in 2010, and it would be fair to say that the cultural opinion of Christians probably hasn't got a lot better in the last 12 years. Rejection and insults towards Christians are becoming more and more the norm in the United States. And for many of us, this is deeply saddening. Many of you grew up in a country where Christians were held in high esteem, where pastors were trusted just as much as doctors and where publicly professing your faith actually furthered your career. But not so today. The cultural opinion of Christians has changed dramatically in the last half century. And today's passage helps us to see why that might be and how God might actually use that for good. Welcome to Chapel Hill. My name's Ellis, and I'm really glad to be joining you in person after a couple of weeks worshiping online. Uh, For those of you who are aware, I took a fall and and hit my head, and uh, I sustained a concussion. The doctor's done some tests and evaluations. They don't believe there's anything more sinister at play for which I am grateful. And I'm even more grateful to this church. For those of you who were praying for me, writing me notes of encouragement, helping us with childcare, and bringing food to us. Thank you, Chapel Hill. And today we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. We've called this series Exiles, Believers in an Unbelieving World. And one of the realities of being a believer in an unbelieving world is experiencing suffering for our faith. And in today's passage, Peter's going to address this issue of suffering. But before we dive into that, I want to clarify the type of suffering that Peter is talking about. In the passage, we're going to study the word that when, when Peter uses the word suffering, he's referring to a particular type of suffering, which we might call Christian suffering. And to help us understand what that is, we might want to distinguish it from another type of suffering, one that I think we are all much more familiar with, and that is what I'm going to call common suffering. Common suffering is suffering that is experienced by everyone believer or unbeliever. It's cancer, sickness, violence, death, war, loss, grief. Common suffering is a seriously tough issue to deal with, especially the question of how could a good God allow such suffering to take place? This passage doesn't address that question, But I did preach on it a few years ago, and we've linked to that sermon in this week's guide if you want to take a listen or a read. So that's common suffering. 
Peter in this passage is talking about Christian suffering. Christian suffering is suffering that is particularly linked to us being Christians. It's linked to our affiliation with Christ. And Christian suffering on the whole is not something we in the Western church are familiar with. The church in the global south, which is just another way of saying everywhere in the world except Europe, North America, and Australia, the church in the global south, which incidentally is the fastest growing segment of the church in the world, that part of the church is very familiar with Christian suffering. They know what it is to be ostracized from their family for choosing Jesus. They know what it is to worship in fear of the authorities arresting them. And they know what it is to be imprisoned or to be martyred for their faith. We don't. We have tremendous religious freedom in our nation in comparison to those in the global south. And yet, the church is growing there and it's shrinking here. Maybe by the end of today's message, we might understand the reason behind that explosive growth. Anyone ever watch the show Mythbusters? Anyone ever, ever see that one? Yeah? They took common beliefs and they tried to use the scientific method to prove whether they were true or whether they were myths that could be busted. And if you're in Gen Z, you probably never saw it, but it's a bit like Snopes.com for the cable TV era. In today's passage... Peter is going to bust some myths about Christian suffering. Three myths, in fact. Three things that I think we in the West, where we don't experience Christian suffering as a part of our everyday lives, three things I think we tend to believe, three myths that we tend to believe about Christian suffering. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll see the first myth that Peter's going to bust, and it's this. Christian suffering is not surprising. The first myth Peter wants to bust about Christian suffering is that it's a surprise. Listen to what Peter says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I recently saw a YouTube video about a woman named Lacey Fay who lives every day like it's 1958. She owns a mid-century home filled with only mid-century items. She drives a mid-century car and wears only mid-century clothes. And she loves to go to the local drugstore with her mid-century husband. Yes, he plays along. She loves to sit at the bar with him and get mid-century ice cream sundaes. She lives in 2022, but she lives like it's 1958. I think there are many Christians in this nation who live their lives pretending like it's 1958. Not in fashion or in dress, but in believing that the US is still a nation where Christianity is not only accepted, but encouraged. And for those who live like it's 1958, today's rejection of Christians is surprising. They are surprised when culture turns against Christians. Surprised when their faith is openly mocked. Surprised when they experience rejection. But Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This change in our cultural milieu from 
accepting Christians to rejecting them, this change, while it is saddening, it should not be surprising. Christian suffering should be an expected part of our everyday lives, even in a nation built around the principle of the freedom of religion. Recently, I was at the Alpha Conference. I love the Alpha Conference for many reasons, but one of them is that it brings together Protestants and Catholics. While we were there, we heard from a Catholic priest named Father John Ricardo. He was being asked about this issue of the change in our culture and how Christians are responding, and I loved what he said. I wrote it down. I'm going to read it to you. He said, it's going to get worse before it gets worse. And then he went on to say, but so what? God has prepared you for this moment. He doesn't want you in the past. He wants you in the now. Beloved, Christian suffering is normal. We should not be surprised when we experience insults or rejection or alienation as a result of our faith. There is nothing strange happening to us. This is the norm. And when it does happen, we need to trust and believe that God has us exactly where he wants us. If he wanted us in the past, he would have put us there. But he didn't. He put us in the present. You are right where God wants you. Now, I'm not saying that we should be completely passive when it comes to our culture, that we should stop seeking to keep our religious freedoms. I I am a firm believer in freedom of religion for all, and I would encourage every single one of us to fight for that freedom. But just know that it is entirely possible that our country may not be able to sustain freedom of religion for all. And you know what? That's okay, because God has us exactly where he wants us. So the first myth that Peter busts is that Christian suffering is a surprise. Christian suffering is not surprising. Second is this, Christian suffering is not shameful. The second myth we tend to believe is that we should be ashamed of suffering for our faith. But we need not be ashamed We need not be ashamed if our culture turns against us, if if our culture rejects us, if our culture ostracizes us. Why? Because we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus himself. And there is nothing shameful about sharing anything with Jesus. Take a look at verse 13 and following. Peter writes, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Back when I was in in college, I played rugby. I was the only believer on the rugby team. And there were plenty of times when I felt ashamed because of the ways I could not fully participate in the team activities. And by that, I mean extracurricular activities. And if you know rugby players, then you probably know what I'm talking about. 
One of them stood out in particular. Upon joining the rugby team, there was what was called an initiation ceremony. It basically involved drinking a lot of alcohol and performing a variety of activities that was designed to make you vomit it back up. Hilarious, right? I knew that if I wanted to be part of the team in any real way, I had to go through this initiation ceremony. But I honestly didn't know how I could do it. I didn't know how I could participate in something that I was opposed to on the grounds of my faith. And then I had what I think was a divine moment. And when you hear it, I think you'll agree with me. I thought, what if I approach the team captain and I say, how would you feel if instead of drinking alcohol in the initiation, I replaced it with milk? Now the team captain was this huge Yorkshireman with this big, deep, booming voice. He'd made the national newspapers the year before with some antics that he'd uh, done on campus, and he was referred to behind his back as a Beanock. Anyone know what a Beanock is? I didn't either. Big name on campus. And to say that I was scared of how he might respond would be an understatement. I was terrified. And yet I knew I had to do something. And so I boldly approached him with my request. And as I did, he burst out laughing, which made me even more afraid. <laughs> but when he stopped, he said to me, I love it. Yes. It transpired that the reason for his laughter was thinking about the quantity of milk that I was going to have to consume and the inevitable results when I took part in the other activities. Well, I crossed that hurdle, but I was still ashamed that I wouldn't be able to fully participate in the initiation. And I wondered what my, my fellow first-year students, those who were being initiated along with me, what would they think about this? Well, word got around. And an amazing thing happened. There were two other first-year students who went to the captain, and they volunteered to share in drinking milk alongside me. Now, they were not believers, but they asked if they could join me so that I was not alone. I went from feeling ashamed and ostracized to feeling accepted and included. It's normal to feel ashamed when we're rejected, when we're ostracized, when we're made an outlier in some way. But when someone else joins us and chooses to suffer alongside us, that goes away. Peter writes, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. When we suffer for our faith, we do not suffer alone. Instead, we suffer alongside Jesus Christ. Christ, who was God in very nature, and yet didn't cling to that, that power that he had or that status that he had, but he gave it up. And he became a, a human being, humbling himself. And he went beyond that. He experienced the rejection of all even his closest friends. And he was given a crown of thorns. He was mocked, whipped, and crucified under false charges. And then, in what must have been the ultimate moment of shame, 
he experienced the rejection of his heavenly father. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ suffered in unimaginable ways. And when we suffer for our faith, we do not suffer alone. We suffer alongside the King of Kings. There is nothing to be ashamed of in suffering for our faith because there is nothing to be ashamed of in sharing Christ's sufferings. If he did it, we can too. And here's the good news, beloved. Because we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also share in his glory. Peter writes, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In the same way that we share in Jesus being rejected by the world, we will share in him being accepted by heaven because we are found in Christ, being willing to identify with him in his sufferings, we will get to identify with him in his glory. And he has been glorified. He has triumphed over evil. He now sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And we, Paul writes, are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. If we share with Christ in his sufferings, we will share with him in his glory. Amen. So do not be ashamed when you are reviled, insulted, rejected, or ostracized. Christ is sharing with you in your sufferings. And one day you will share with him in his glory. So that's the second myth that Peter busts. First, it was that Christian suffering is not surprising. Second, Christian suffering is not shameful. And third, Christian suffering is not squandered. The third myth I think we tend to believe is that suffering is pointless. That God does not waste any kind of suffering. And least of all, he does not waste Christian suffering. Any suffering we receive for identifying with Christ is not squandered by our God. Hear what Peter writes in verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Why is Christian suffering not squandered? Because it is God's judgment on his people. Now, I know that when you hear the words God's judgment, you don't necessarily think of something good. Am I right? But the type of judgment that is referred to in these verses that begins in the household of God, it begins with the church. This type of judgment is perhaps a little bit different than the one your mind might immediately jump to when you hear those words. When a metal worker wants to craft a metal object, they, they heat up the metal in a fire to an incredibly high temperature to the point where it melts. And this has two purposes it enables the worker to pour the metal into a cast and mold something new, but it also enables the worker to remove what is called dross from the metal. This dross is the imperfections in the metal which float on the surface of the molten metal. And because of the extreme heat placed upon it, the metal becomes purer. 
Now, that's incredibly important when you are working with precious metals like gold and silver, where the purity of the metal affects its value. And we call that fire into which the metal is placed, the refiner's fire. It is a fire that refines the metals. In the verse that that I just read, Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He's actually making reference here to a couple of passages from the Old Testament that would have been quite familiar to those of his listeners who were Jewish. One of them comes from the prophet Malachi. Malachi talks about a day when the Lord is going to come in judgment to his temple, to his house. This is what Malachi writes. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. That's us, the household of God, the church. Today we are priests in Christ. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi is talking about that, that process of purifying precious metals. He's saying that when the Lord comes to his people, he will come to purify them. Just like a refiner's fire purifies metal, the Lord's coming will purify his people. And as a result, they will bring worship that is acceptable to the Lord. Peter takes this image from Malachi and he applies it to the topic of Christian suffering. He says that when we suffer, when we, the sons of Levi, the household of God, the church, when we suffer, God is actually judging the impurities in our life. He's looking at what is impure in us. And like a metal worker, he's refining us and purifying us through this process of judgment. He's turning up the heat, forcing the impurities to come to the surface before he then pours us out in a purified state into the mold that he has for us. Church, I think we in the West for too long have been a mile wide and an inch deep. We have been numerous in people, but we have been shallow in our faith. I think for too long the church in the West has lived with complacency in the freedom of religion that we have, that we have taken our faith for granted. And as a result, we have not pushed roots that go down deep. We're a mile wide, and yet we're an inch deep. And I believe that in this season of the life of the church in the West, the Lord is seeking to purify his church, that he is beginning to turn up the heat Slowly, gradually, but effectively. See, our God desires a church that is both wide and deep. But I think that the path to get there might not be pretty. We may well go through a season where the church in the West is only an inch wide in order that we might go a mile deep. Our God desires a holy and pure bride. Not a bride who is stained by the marks of consumerism, individualism, 
tribalism, racism, sexism, narcissism, and greed, amongst many other sins. And our God is turning up the heat on the church in the West in order to purify his bride. Christian suffering is not squandered by our God. He will use it to prune his vine. And as a result, we will bear much fruit. And beloved, right now, I believe we are in that season of purification. It's painful, yes. And as Father John Ricardo said, I think it's going to get worse before it gets worse. But our God will not squander this suffering. He will use it. Just as the church in the global south is exploding in the midst of Christian suffering, I believe God will use Christian suffering in the West to grow his church in ways that we cannot even fathom. So let's make this personal. How is God refining you? How is he turning up the heat in your life? What are the impurities that are rising to the surface? What's that dross in the midst of the gold that our Lord wants to take off the top to leave the pure metal behind? What is it for you? So Peter busts three myths about Christian suffering. First, Christian suffering is not surprising. Second, Christian suffering is not shameful. And third, Christian suffering is not squandered. And so what are we to do? Well, Peter tells us in the final verse of this passage, verse 19, he writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that's us, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Two things, trust and do good. First, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Our God has put us here for a reason. This is not a surprise to him what we are beginning to enter into. And our God will bring us to the other side of it. And he will bring us through purer and stronger. He will be faithful through the midst of whatever it is that we face. You can trust in him. He has proven himself again and again and again. The church has lasted 2,000 years for one reason and one reason alone. And that is the God of the universe who is leading and guiding his church and bringing her to a purer and purer place consistently. We can trust our God with our very lives, no matter what it looks like we might be facing around us. Trust and do good. Even if the world is set against us, we must not give up doing good. We must not stop being the hands and feet of Jesus We must not stop being the church beyond these walls. We must not stop loving our neighbor, serving the poor, reaching out for the lost, caring for the sick. That is our call. That is our mandate. We are called to do good. 
And as the great English preacher John Wesley once said, and with this I will close, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That is our call, church. Let's stand. We're going to pray. Maybe close your eyes. If you're willing to trust your life to God today, if you're willing to be used as one of his servants to do good in this world, maybe just stretch out your hands in front of you as a sign of, I'm, I'm offering myself to you, God, today. So we come to you, God, and we recognize that you, you're turning up the heat you're seeking to purify us. And Lord, we're, we're ready. We know it's hard. We know it'll be hard. But we trust you. We trust that you know what you're doing. And we give our lives to you as your servants. Would you pour out your spirit upon us that in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, we may continue to do good. Holy Spirit, come. We need your courage. We need your boldness. We need your wisdom in the midst of this hour. joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.